Chapter 11 of Kit and Kitty by Richard Doddridge Blackmore. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 11 The Fine Arts. When the butter that is truly buttering and the cheddar of the great republic are gracefully returned to our beloved grocer with a feeble prayer for amendment, what does he say? Why, the very same thing that he said upon the last occasion. Indeed! All our customers like it extremely. It is the very thing we have had the most praise for, and this is the very first complaint. In like manner I receive for answer, when I fain would have sent back to that storekeeper love a few of the sensations I had to pay for, that everybody praised them and considered them ennobling, and was only eager once again to revel in their freshness, and, to tell the truth, when my own time came for looking calmly back at them, I became one of the larger public, and would have bought them back at any price, as an old man regards his first caning. However, I did not know that now, and could not stop to analyze my own feelings, which might for the moment perhaps be described as deep longings for a height never heard of, all the everyday cares and hide-bound pothers of the people round me, were as paltry pebbles below my feet, and I longed to be alone, to think of one other presence, and only one. Uncle Corney, in his downright fashion, called me as mad as a March hare, but I was simply sorry for him, and kept out of his way and tried to work. Tabby Tapscott became a plague, by poking common jokes at me, and the family men on the premises seemed to have a grin among themselves when my back was turned. The only man I could bear to work with was the long one we called Celsi Bill, because he came from that part of Sussex and resembled that endless projection. He was said to have seventeen lawful children, enough to keep any man silent. Moreover, he was beyond all doubt the ugliest man in the parish, which may have added to my comfort in his mute society. As a proof of the facility of wedlock, the sharp click of his iron heel on the treadle of his spade, the gentle sigh that came sometimes as he thought of how little he would find for supper, and the slow turn of his distorted eyes as he looked about for the wheelbarrow, all these by some deep law of nature soothed my dreamy discontent. But what was there fairly to grumble at if I chose to cast my eyes above me and set my affections out of reach? Reason could not be expected to undo run reason, and hitherto what luck had led me, what good fortune fed me with the snatches of warm rapture, even my own wickedness had prospered, and never had been found out. Surely the fates were on my side, and the powers of the air encouraged me. What a lovely morning it was now, for the fairest of beings to walk abroad, and for me to be walking in the same direction. Although the earth was sodden still, and the trees unripe with summer drip, and the autumnal roses hung their sprays with leathery balls instead of bloom. Yet the air was fresh, and the sky bright blue, and the grass as green as in the May month, and many a plant that is spent and withered after a brilliant season, was opening its raiment to tempt the sun, and budding into gems for him to polish. The spring that had forgotten tryst with earth this year, and been weeping for it ever since, was come at last, if only for one tender glance through the russet locks of autumn. Why should not man who suffers with distresses of the air and earth take heart again, and be cheerful with them, ay, and enjoy his best condition, 
that of loving and being loved. There was enough to tempt the gloomiest and most timid mortal to make his venture towards such bliss when Kitty Fairthorn, blushing softly and glancing as brightly as the sunshine twinkles through a bower of wild rose, came along to me alone, where I stood looking out for her father. Although I had been thinking bravely of all the things set down above, not one of them kept faith, or helped me to the courage of their reasoning. Instead of that my heart fell low, and my eyes, which had been full of hope, would scarcely dare to render to it the picture of which it held so many, yet never could manage to hold enough. She saw my plight, and was sorry for it, and frightened perhaps both of that and herself. It is so unlucky, she said without looking any more than good manners demanded at me. Last night I began to think that all was going to be quite nice again, for that very peculiar dog that my aunt is so strongly attached to just came back, as if he had only gone for a little airing on his own account, and so as to have all the road to himself. He was as fat as ever, but oh so gentle, and his reputation is not quite that. Perhaps you have heard of him. He seems to be well known. I think I have heard of him. Why, of course it must be the dog that was mentioned in the handbills. We had two of them upon our wall. Mrs. Marker was speaking of him when you passed on Thursday, only I could not attend to her. Then you ought to have done so, she replied as if without any idea of my inner thought, for there has been the greatest excitement about it. But I suppose inside these walls and among these trees and lovely flowers you scarcely know what excitement is. Don't I, then? Oh, I wish I didn't, I replied with a deeply sad look at her. It is you who are so much above all this, who can have no idea what real, real, a sort of despair, I mean, is like. But I beg your pardon, you mustn't notice me. How can I help being sorry for you? She asked very softly when our eyes had met. You have been so good to me and saved my life, but of course I have no right to ask what it is, and I know that the crops are always failing, and now you have a dear little tree quite dead, my father has sent me to try and make a careful drawing of it, because it was struck by some extraordinary lightning, and the worst of it is that he has been called away and can hardly be back till the evening. He has invented a new conductor for ships of the navy that are to have iron all over and under them, and therefore want protecting. He had a letter from the Admiralty this morning. Oh, dear, what a pity, uh, what a sad loss, I replied. I am afraid it will take us so much longer, without having him here to direct us, and I doubt if my uncle Cornelius will be able to be with us half the time. Oh, that is just what I was to say. Her tone was demure, but her glance quite bright. On no account am I to interfere with the valuable time of Mr. Orchardson. Indeed, I shall not trouble anyone, if I may only be shown the poor tree, and then be allowed to fetch a chair or a stool or, or even a hassock and then be told where to find some clear water, and perhaps be reminded when the time is one o'clock, I am sure I shall do beautifully. You are certain to do beautifully. There is no other way that you could do. No one shall be allowed to disturb you. I should like to see anyone dare to come near you except, except, except Mrs. Tapscott. You see, I have heard of her, and it is so kind of you to think of her. Then I shall be quite happy." Mrs. Tapscott, indeed. No, except me myself. 
I shall lock that chattering woman in the back kitchen, or how could you ever do a stroke? I am sure it will take you a very long time. There are three other trees that you ought to draw if you wish to show exactly what the lightning did. I hardly see how you can finish today. If you leave off at one o'clock, it will be utterly impossible, and my uncle Cornelius will be in such a rage if you think of going back without anything to eat. How very kind everybody is down here. It is the very nicest place I have ever been in. I will be so miserable to go away. I am not at all accustomed to such kindness. Her lovely eyes glistened as she began to speak, and a tear was in each of them as she turned away. I felt as if I could have cried myself to see such an innocent angel so sad, but I durst not ask any questions and was bound to go on as if I knew nothing. What a little drawing block you have, I said. You ought to have one at least twice that size. Do let me lend you one. I have three or four, and you can choose which you like of them, and my pencils, too, and my color-box. There are none to be had in the village. If you will rest a moment in this little harbor, I will get them all and a chair for you. It did not take me long to let Tabby Tapscott know that if she dared even to look out of the window, she would mourn for it all the rest of her life. Moreover, that she must not let anybody know in what direction I was gone, even if his grace of C.G. himself came down, to grant us the best stall he had forever. Tabby winked with both eyes and inquired if I took her for a vool or a zany or kuchri hoosbird, and she said she would have some good fundumation by one o'clock, and as I hurried back to the bower there came almost into my very hand the loveliest souvenir d'un ami, rose that ever lifted glossy pink to show the richer glow within. This rose I cut with the tender touch, which a gardener uses boldly, and laid it on my drawing-block, so that each exquisite tinge and fringe and curve of radiant leaflet, as well as the swan-like bend of stalk and soft retirement of sepal, led up to the crowning beauty of the bloom above them. I never saw anything equal to that, said one who might outvie the whole. Who can have taught you, Mr. Kit, such knowledge of what is beautiful? She had called me by my village name, and more than that, she had let me know that she looked upon me as a rustic. I saw my advantage and was deeply hurt that she might make it up again. You are right, I answered, turning back as if in sad abasement. Miss Fairthorne, you are right indeed in supposing that I know nothing. However, I am able to carry a chair and to wait upon you humbly. Let us go to the tree, and at one o'clock I will venture to come and tell the time. Oh, I never meant it at all like that. I could never have imagined you would take me up so. I seem to say the wrong thing always, as I am told every day at home. I hope that it was not true, but now, now, I have given offense to you, you who have been so good to me. I could never attempt to draw today. I will tell my father that I was rude to you, and he will send somebody else to do it. I felt that this would have served me right, but I was not in love with justice. I implore you not to do that, I said. Really, that would be too hard upon me. Why should you wish to be hard upon me? I am trying to think what I have done to deserve it. You are worse than the ground lightning. Then I suppose I killed your trees. I am not going now to be silly any more. Tell me what to do, 
to show that you have quite forgiven me. You know that I never meant to vex you. She looked at me so sweetly that I could only meet her eyes. I declare it will be one o'clock before I have done a thing. Oh, my father, say, and I must be so careful. I am sure that you could do it better, better much than I can. Will you do it while I go and look for Mr. Orchardson? I like him very much, and his fruit is so delicious. No, you won't relieve me? Well, shake hands and be good friends again. May I have this lovely rose to give my father something beautiful when he comes back from London? I saw that she was talking fast, that my prudence might come back to me. She knew as well from my long gaze that I loved her and must always love her, as I to the bottom of my heart knew it, and she did not seem offended at me, only blushed and trembled, just as if some important news were come, perhaps by telegraph, and she wondered while she opened it. For me this was enough, and more almost than I could hope for, to let her keep this knowledge in her mind and dwell upon it, until, if happy angels came, as they gladly would, to visit her, the sweetest of them all might fan it with his wings into her heart. Ah, oh, Kit, my lad!' cried Uncle Corney when he came to dinner and my darling was gone with her sketch half done, and I had only dared to hover near her. "'Sweetheart been here, they tell me. What a leery chap you are. When I heard Captain was gone to town, I thought it was all over. I've been wanting you up at the packing shed for the last three hours. No more good work left in you. That's what come of sweethearting.' "'Uncle Corey, if you must be vulgar because you have no proper sense of things, "'the least you could do is not to hola, as if you were driving a truck of rags and bones.' "'Hoity-toity, here does it go. "'One would think there had been no courting done since Adam and Eve to your time. "'Too hot to hold, that's my opinion. "'And as for rags and bones, young fellow, that's just about what it will come to.' A girl won't have sixpence by what I hear, though there's lots of tin in the family. I know a deal more than you do about them. Don't pop the question without my leave. What a way to put it. End of chapter 11